Welcome to episode number 11 of the Marine Layer Podcast with TJ Matthewson and Lyle Goldstein. On today's pod, we'll talk to Joe Doyle of ProspectsLive.com. He's the director of Major League Baseball Draft, a guy that is very, very knowledgeable on the Seattle Mariners. We'll talk to him about a number of things, including the Mariners international signing class that happened this past Sunday, headlined by the number two international prospect, Felnine Celestin. And then we'll also look at Mariners catchers this season and preview that position for the 2023 campaign. We'll look around baseball with our MLB wraparound, a couple of interesting arbitration cases that we'll touch on. We'll close out the show with Speak Your Mind. With that, let's get it rolling. And we welcome you into the Marine Layer Podcast, episode number 11. Lyle, dog, how are we doing today? We're doing pretty good. I got to be honest, baseball news is starting to slow down as we've learned this week. I feel like there's been free agency stuff now trickling in for a while, but not so much the case anymore. That's what happens when all the free agents go off the board. I feel like we need a guy like Carlos Correa to really like stir up the free agent pot and and say something, say something that's just like total rubbish, but really just like I mentioned in our Correa segment last week, how he is really the, um, the, his situation is something that would only happen in the NBA. Well, we, now we need some NBA level drama to get us to spring training about a month from now. What wouldn't you say? I mean, what we need, we just need someone to go on first take and just start spewing something that we can be like, okay, hot take alert, hot take alert. <laughs> Brian Reynolds says he will not show up to Pirates training camp or Pirates spring training. I I couldn't picture anything that would that would you know be ahead of that in on first take. I I, I don't think so. No, no, not at all. I think you guys are really gonna uh, as we get to our our main subject this week. You guys are really gonna enjoy this interview with Joe Doyle that we did just before recording this intro. It really is a good conversation, and I think both of us really learned a lot about Felnine. Celestin, including how to pronounce his name. That is how we believe that he will be called here in the States. But there's a lot of really good information there, Lyle. I really enjoy talking with Joe, and I think a lot of you will enjoy the conversation that we'll play here in just a few seconds. Yeah, I thought it was great. I mean, I certainly learned a lot as we kind of got into talking with him. Going into this interview, I thought the comp for Celestin was... Wander Franco. I mean, there's so little information out there right now that that was the comp I'd seen a couple of times. Turns out that not that's probably not the case. Joe has his own thoughts on it, and he gave some pretty good information on why that is. So we'll get to that interview with Joe uh, here in a couple seconds. Yeah, really good. You can find all of Joe's stuff on prospectslive.com. He's the director of MLB Draft. Uh, covers a whole bunch of things. The draft, We I love his draft content. Uh, and it'll be especially important for the Mariners this year. Three first-round picks for the M's this year. Something that we're super excited about and something that we'll definitely talk about when the draft rolls along in July. With that, let's get to our interview with Joe Doyle. We welcome on Joe Doyle, the director of ProspectsLive.com. Covers the Major League Baseball draft. A guy with deep knowledge of the Mariners' farm system and a guy who has a lot of knowledge on the international signing class the Mariners started to put together this past Sunday on the 15th and headlined by the number two international prospect, Felnine Celestin. So we welcome Joe Doyle on to the Marine Layer Podcast. Joe, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. 
Absolutely, guys. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, I, I listen to your guys' podcast every now and then. It's good stuff. Thanks, Joe. We do. Uh, we appreciate that. So let's get into sort of the nuts and bolts of this. These international guys, it's a little bit harder to find some information on them for the general fan. And since these guys are, you know, 16, 17 years old, they're a way out for the major leagues. But in terms of that relationship between the Mariners and Celestin, when, when did this all start? When did they start getting eyes on him? When, when did it all really um, start clicking for them that, hey, this is a real option for, for the Mariners to sign? And just a little bit of general background information on who he is and how he landed here. Yeah, so Celestin has been a prospect in scouting circles since the latter part of his age 13 year, to be totally honest. Uh, Seattle was you know, well involved uh, towards the latter half of when he was 14 years old. And, you know, they don't want to say that, that, you know, there was a deal before January 15th of this year, but um, I'll just put it this way. Seattle has been the favorite to land Celestin for, for quite some time. Um, what was the second part of your question? I'm sorry. Just like a general overview of, of, of who he is as a player before we sort of dive into the specifics. Yeah. So I think the biggest thing that, that comes to mind for me in following the Celestin saga has been just over the last year. And I guess this is to be expected from a guy his age, he's really gotten very physical. You know, when, when he committed to Seattle, he was six feet, 155 pounds. Right now he's like six, two, 180 pounds, 184 pounds, which is pretty physical for a kid, his, his age. And it's really made a lot of the other tools pop. Uh, he he's faster, he's stronger. He's showing more power than I think a lot of people expected him to show going back to uh, his earlier years. The hit tool has really taken uh, a step forward from the left side of the plate. Really, I mean, you never know what this kid is going to look like in four years when he's 21. But for now, everything projects in a positive direction. And you can't say that for guys in the past, like you know, even Julio Rodriguez, there were fears that he was going to end up in right field as an oversized prospect because he had gotten bigger and it wasn't good weight when he was getting bigger. You know, Noel V. Marte had gotten packed in and, and um, barrel chested and uh, kind of bigger around the hips. So it was hard to project him up the middle. Celestin is growing the right way. He's uh, his tools are moving in the right direction. And right now the sky is the limit. So uh, we'll see whether or not he can assimilate to professional ball, but everything really looks positive. Well, that's a pretty good overview of what stands out about him. But in the early stages here, obviously it's so hard to project a 17 year old kid down the line, but from where we're standing right now, there's been some early comps just from a few people to Wanda Franco between the switch hitting, between his ability to play shortstop. Do you feel like that's a fair comparison? And if not, is there anybody else who he reminds you of? I don't think the Wander Franco comps are are appropriate. Wander Franco had an had an elite hit tool from the time he was very, very young. He had an elite eye at the plate. He had elite bat-to-ball skills. That's not Celestin's profile yet. Not right now. He's more impactful at this age than Wander Franco was at this age. He's more physical than Wander Franco. I've heard comps of Francisco Lindor. He's got three or four inches already on Francisco Lindor. For me, if you wanted to throw out a comp, like early years, D.D. Gregorius, I think makes more sense. I think there's some similarities between Jerks and Profar, but the Jerks and Profar that was the number one prospect 
not the jerks and Profar that's been a good player, never turned into a great player. I've heard the comps of, of like Hanley Ramirez and Hanley Ramirez was more offensive than defensive. And Celestin is, is really well-rounded right now. I mean, so he's really accomplished defender. So frankly, right now I'm kind of taking the tack that Felning Celestin is his own prospect. He's his own profile. And I don't necessarily think he compares well to any one specific player. I mean, if, if you wanted to draw conclusions, I would say DD Gregorius, but a full grade better on the defensive end. So when we talk about those tools that you mentioned, and he really has all five of them, which one do you think is going to pop the most? You Like as he's grown, you mentioned, yeah, they're, they're all popping right now. But when you think he gets to maybe 19 years old and enters real prospect status, what is there going to be a defining one? Well, personally, from a scouting perspective, I think anytime you can stay on the shortstop position, it really just balloons your prospect status. I mean, if you are a true surefire shortstop, the ability to stay at the position and project a hit is huge. So I think there's always going to be more question marks surrounding a hit tool from a prospect, whether that be Felnine Celestin or 23-year-old Jared Kelnick. You never know how these guys' hit tools are going to progress. The bat speed, he's still really lean, so I don't know if he's ever going to be a power hitter, but it's going in the right direction. If I were to say I was confident in one specific tool with Celestin, it would be the defense. And if he has the ability to stay at shortstop, anything that he can do with the bat that's above average uh, is going to be true value. So then we continue to to sort of look at him and more. This is, I guess, a little bit away from tools, but looking at just his two sides of the plate. I mean, the scouting report says as him being a switch hitter, lefty side, more of a doubles, uh, a doubles guy, right side, a little bit more power and a little bit more bat speed. He's a guy that's going to switch hit his entire time in the minors, right? I, yeah, I don't think there's any doubt. Uh, he, he's actually fairly accomplished from both sides of the plate. Uh, from the left side, I have a little bit of concern just because there's a lot more loft in the left-handed side and the, not quite as much bat speed, and I think that can get you in trouble against higher velocity. From the right side, he's got the bat speed to handle just about anything, but it's more of a line drive approach. Now, that being said, the exit velocities that he's posting um, are much more impressive than the left side. So like there's there's a positive and a negative from both sides like uh, on on the right he's not hitting it over the fence yet but he is showing huge bat speed from the left he does have the ability to hit over the fence and hit for loft but he's not showing the impact that he is from the right side so uh, there's i guess to answer your question there's a bedrock there there's a foundation there to take both sides of the plate and really turn them into a pretty exciting profile but yeah he's he's more than accomplished enough from both sides so just as kind of a timetable is it safe to say at some point during the 2024 season might be when we start to see him in affiliated ball? I would think he will spend all of 2023 in the Dominican Summer League. Now, there have been outliers. Gabriel Gonzalez came up and and spent some time this year in in Arizona. Um, That could happen if if he just proves to be way too advanced. But, I mean, we saw last year with Lazaro Montez. People thought that this guy was going to be – the bat is so special. He's going to move up because of the bat. He's, you know, all these these different comps. That's not really the case. So I would expect him to spend all of 2023 in the Dominican Summer League, probably open 2024 in one of either the Arizona Complex League or Modesto, depending on how good he was uh, in 2023. Uh, But, yeah, I think – to answer your question, I wouldn't expect to see him in full season ball, full season affiliated ball until 2024. 
Is he the kind of guy when when you look at the Mariners system and we saw the action the Mariners did at the trade deadline this last offseason, trading two pretty good shortstop prospects. So I guess Noelvi turned into about a third base prospect when he when he kind of grew out a little bit. But Edwin was a pure shortstop prospect, Edwin Arroyo, top one hundred prospect, and they ship him off for Luis Castillo. But you have this sort of inkling in the back of your mind that you're gonna have this really young group of shortstops head headlined by Celestin in this farm system again guys like uh uh michael arroyo cole young uh and then the three first round picks this year which you wouldn't be surprised if they pick another shortstop is that something they really have in mind when they see this sort of really blue chip international guy and are comfortable trading some of their young uh younger got uh younger guys and younger shortstops from the system as you go forward yeah i think specifically in the case of noel v Marte, he had no felony and celestin had nothing to do with noel v Marte. i mean Marte should play for the Reds in 2023. Felney and Celestin is, you know, 2026, 2027, right? So with Arroyo, I'm sure there was a little bit of hesitancy uh, with wanting to deal him. I mean, we've heard Jerry DePoto say as much. That one really hurt uh, to deal him. But in a vacuum, I don't think philosophically any organization is willing to trade one teenage shortstop because they have another teenage shortstop because the volatility in that group is just so high. I mean, Michael Arroyo is probably going to move to third base this season or second base this season. Cole Young is certainly no surefire shortstop. And if he is, he's just going to be average at best, you know, Adam Frazier-esque at that type of a position. Um, So, yeah, I, I don't think you ever trade from an area of depth at such a low minors level uh, when you know that you're landing another teenage shortstop. So to answer your question, probably that probably Celestin probably had absolutely nothing to do with their comfortability level to move Arroyo. Well, just going off that now that Arroyo and Marte are out of the system, but you have guys like Celestin, Michael Arroyo, even Cole Young in the system, where does their infield depth rank now? with Celestin compared to where it was when they had Arroyo and Marte? In terms of the farm? Yeah. Well, like I said, it's it's an impressive young teenage group of infielders. There's no doubt about that. Cole Young can really hit. I mean, he, I watched him going back to when he was a junior in high school in Pennsylvania. The kid can really, really hit. Um, Michael Arroyo, I think, has been a guy that has blown expectations out of the water his first year in the organization. Uh, I think he's kind of got that uh, hidden gem label that's been uh, thrown around a bit. But at the same time, like you got to look at it from this perspective. They may have infield depth in their farm system, but you're not going to see any of these guys until at least 2025, right? So how much depth do you really have? You can look at it last year and say, okay, if, if everything went wrong in 2023 and Eugenio Suarez got hurt and... J.P. Crawford got hurt. Noel V. Marte would have been a very real option. That will not be the case for the next two seasons for Seattle. They are not going to have a prospect that's going to be an option. So from that regard, they got probably more players, more talent, but they're a long ways away. And we could throw Axel uh, Sanchez in there as well. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I guess one last question I have with Celestin. I mean, where does this sort of historically rank for the Mariners in terms of international signing? I mean, the two guys that everyone thinks of first is Felix and Julio, which both, you know, turn out to be pretty slam dunks. But 
as my limited knowledge on Mariners' high-profile international signings for the last 20 years. I mean, are there some other guys I'm missing there where this this stacks up against? And uh, I guess I'm not really sure where those guys ended up uh, as things went along. So do you have an idea about that? I mean, Felix Hernandez wasn't a high-profile signing out of the international free agent class. He just kind of exploded. You know, he just turned into something that they didn't expect him to be when he when he went pro. He surged through the system. You know, it took him two years to go to Tacoma, which is unheard of. But I think to answer your question, you know, the international signing period, the international signing process has changed so much. It's no longer a wild, wild west. There's no longer guys like uh, Rusny Castillo for the Red Sox getting, you know, $50 million on the open market because it's a bidding war. You're capped by your bonus pool. So um, I think to answer your question, we're not going to know what Felney and Celestin move, uh, means to the organization from an international standpoint for another eight years. But what we do know is what Julio Rodriguez means to the organization. He's already, uh, you know, promotes the organization effortlessly with his play. Felix Hernandez obviously um, ha- plays a big part in that in, in the past with um, with his performances. And if you know if Celestin never does anything, he he won't mean anything to the Mariners. But in terms of high profile signings at the time. Uh, this is by far the biggest bonus. It's by far the biggest ranking. Um, yeah, this is this this is a pretty this is a pretty significant deal in terms of the history of international signings for the organization and for the rest of the class as well. I mean, could you highlight a couple other guys that you're really high on that that maybe not be a, uh, as well known? Yeah, I mean the the guy that I've been pounding the drum for is Dylan Wilson out of Curacao, six foot one, six foot one and a half. 175 pounds, really whippy arm, very lean, super athletic, two-way player in Curacao for whatever that's worth at 16, um, up to 91, huge banger curveball. Uh, I've heard comps of, you know, maybe he ends up something akin to a right-handed version of Roanis Elias. And, you know, anytime you can get a player that makes it to the big leagues at all from an international signing period, it's a win. You don't have to have, you know, so-and-so turning into a star for it to be a big win you're signing these guys at 16 they're all wild cards so dylan wilson is a big one jeter martinez is obviously going to be the one that everyone talks about he got a pretty big bonus um six foot three six foot four up to 92 heavy uh sinker with a darting slider that tunnels off of that fastball so those are going to be two guys that i really like i think you know if they throw strikes they could conceivably move kind of quickly into arizona in 2024 um, but that is never to be taken advantage of. I mean, you look at you look back at Juan Pinto. And Juan Pinto was signed in 2021 now as a 16-year-old. He's still in the Dominican Summer League because he's still struggling th- to throw strikes. So I'm very excited to get into the spring to see exactly what these guys have, how polished they are, and see whether or not Seattle's got any uh, real gems here. Well, this has been great. I think we've learned a lot just in these 15 minutes here about Felnine Celestin and other pieces of the international class as well. Cause that was a question I had was who are some of the more underrated guys that might be, fl- you know, flying under the radar and not talked about as much, but that was some really, really good information. I learned a lot for sure in these few minutes. Yeah, good. I mean, I, I'd say, listen, anytime you're going to spend two thirds of your bonus pool on one player, the rest of the class is going to be limited. I mean, one guy got $4.7 million out of six point whatever million that's available. And you got to, you know, spread the rest of the, 2 million out between 11, 12, 13 other guys. So generally, if you're going to have a headliner, you're going to have uh, a bunch of other guys that have smaller bonuses, less media coverage, less highlights out there, less film to evaluate. 
But I do think Seattle's got a couple of pretty good ones in Wilson and Martinez. And, you know, hopefully for Seattle's fans' sake, for prospect hunters, uh, Celestin moves very, very quickly, and he's a, he's an immediate success. TJ, you ready to move on to catchers here? Let's do it. Okay, so we're going to start previewing position by position where the Mariners should profile and rank at each spot going into the 2023 season with Joe on with us today. He's going to help do the first position breakdown with us, which is the catcher spot. And the catcher spot, maybe outside of center field at the starting position, might be the most secure spot on the roster. Now, Joe, I'll let you give your own thoughts on that, but is it a fair expectation after the season that Cal Raleigh just had to say, yeah, he's probably going to be behind the plate for 115 to 120 games next year, barring injury? Yeah, I mean, I would think so. He's a big-time regular catcher. He's got the tools. He's got the arm. He's got the power. He's got the difference-making ability um, to play you know, behind the plate four days of the week, right? And he's talented enough offensively to where – when he does have a day off, you might actually consider him for the designated hitter spot to really rotate those outfielders around. So to answer your question, yes, I, I don't think, I, I will say, I, I think Seattle fans might be getting a little ahead of themselves with what he is offensively. I have no doubts that Cal Raleigh is going to you know, be a guy that hits 24 to 30 home runs. He's that kind of player. He's that kind of body. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of people suggest uh, he's going to take the next step and he's going to hit 240. He's going to hit 245, 250. You know, that's a huge jump, right? Uh, for a guy that had as much swing and miss as Cal Raleigh did, that's a huge jump. But I do think the elimination of the shift is going to help Cal quite a bit. He's obviously hit for a ton of power and he did make adjustments late in the season, specifically against the changeup that I think if he can carry over into 2024, 2023, you know, he could be one of the top five or six catchers in the league. What do you think is a fair expectation for him then? I was talking with Jason Churchill about this on one of his podcasts. And I think the numbers that I threw out was 230, like 225, 230. I think the on base that I threw out was 3, 315 or 320. He's never a guy that walked all that much. But the slugging is where you can really make up a lot of that. You could be a 480 slugging guy. So, you know, if you're a, if you're a, 315 480 and you're pushing 800 OPS for a catcher that's a really good player right especially a guy that threw out you know I don't even remember what 60 percent of the base stealers or something that might be really high but um, yeah I mean if you're a defensive asset and you're posting an 800 OPS with 25 26 home runs that's a pretty significant value behind the plate I know being a switch hitter as a catcher is really, really extremely valuable. And Lyle and I were kind of looking at the the breakdown of how Cal operates from each side of the plate. Lefty is his slugging side, and I didn't realize it, but his right side was honestly more of his on-base side. Do you still like what he produces from both sides of the plate? Maybe you want to see a little bit more power of the right side to sort of buy into to what he is as a hitter? Or is it okay maybe that he's, you know, he's getting you know, most of his walks from the right side somehow uh, from what we see at the plate. And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think actually from the right side of the plate, he's got a much flatter swing. Uh, it's a, it's way more line drive oriented. He's not going to be a home run hitter from the right side. I wouldn't expect him to take a huge jump in the power department from the right side. But if you are drawing up that on base percentage from the right side and you are hitting ringing doubles into the right center field gap opposite way, and that's your approach, you're going to find plenty of success there. That being said, if there was ever a layup 
right, for the time to get Cal off his feet, it would be with a lefty on the mound and get Tom Murphy behind the plate. Because Tom has hit lefties very, very well in his career. And Cooper Hummel needs to find at-bats too. So I think in a perfect world, at least for the first six to eight weeks barring injury during the season, you're probably not going to see Cal behind the plate as much as uh, as much as he did last year. That's actually a good segue here because breaking down the entire position, more than just Cal Raleigh, teams expecting to get Tom Murphy back this year and healthy. And you just mentioned it. He's really hit well against lefties his whole career. And it seems like the philosophy the Mariners are going with here in 2023, there's going to be a lot of platoons between left field, between second base. Is that what you expect to see them do with the catcher's position as well of when there's a lefty on the mound, we might see a lot more Tom Murphy? At least early on. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of easy money, right? Tom Murphy's been good against lefties. You can't put Tom Murphy and, you know, his durability concerns out there more than you probably want. So Tom Murphy probably gets some time at the DH position too with lefties on the mound. But yeah, I think in general, you're going to see Cal Raleigh behind the plate against righties. You're going to see Tom Murphy behind the plate against lefties more often than not. And you're going to see Cooper Hummel uh, sprinkled in there as well, because the team does want to see what Cooper Hummel uh, is able to do behind the plate. You know, at the, at we're still talking about a guy that's a better athlete than anyone in the organization behind the plate. Cooper Hummel is doesn't have a great arm, but he moves laterally well, uh, laterally well. He blocks the ball well. You know, if the team was able to give Luis Torrens the at-bats that they gave him last year, you have to expect through attrition and injury, Cooper Hummel's going to find some some time behind the plate this year. So, uh, yeah, I think I think Seattle's in a good place, both in terms of um, like a floor, a foundation, so long as Cal Raleigh stays healthy, but also some exciting upside with, with what Cooper Hummel could provide to the organization, both in terms of versatility and uh, just exciting upside and control because, you know, they've got Cooper Hummel for five, six years. The thing I'm concerned about, though, before we get to to Cooper Hummel, which we will talk about, but with Tom Murphy, I mean, just he's not on the field very much. A hundred games in the past two seasons, especially last year, it's shoulder, uh, shoulder surgery in in June of last year. So I'm just not sure how I how comfortable I am uh, putting Tom Murphy out there, maybe three four days a week. Not sure how he's going to hold up because it just hasn't given you any reason to, even though I think it's the best option. Do you think there's, you know, maybe a certain number of games they're looking at or Tom Murphy? It's like, well, we need to be careful with this because, you know, he can be fragile at times as much as, you know, that that workout guy he is. And I'll hear how strong he is and how much he lifts in the gym, but doesn't really translate to durability on the field. No, and especially with a bulky uh, shoulder, you got to be really careful with that. It's one thing to break your foot, you break your foot. That's a very straightforward healing process. There's not a lot of check-ins that need to be done there. If you fray a shoulder, that that can really linger. So at least early on in the season, especially in the spring and April, the team's probably going to be pretty cautious with Tom. They're going to watch how he's responding. They're going to watch how sore he is in the mornings. I can't imagine you're ever going to see Tom Murphy on back-to-back days the first month of the season. Um, that being said, in terms of how I view Tom Murphy as a backup in the organization, I would challenge you to find any other team. There are teams, the Blue Jays, for example, but I would challenge you to find many other teams that have a better backup catcher with offensive um, assets, you know, power than Tom Murphy. You know, I, there's, there's no guarantee that he's going to be what he was in 2020 or even some of 2021. Uh, but at, at a minimum, I would say Seattle is well-positioned compared to other teams in terms of their catching situation. 
What, what's the rehab process like? How long is it for a shoulder? It can be long. It can, I mean, I don't remember exactly what the, what the injury was. I want to say it was a frayed labrum of some sort. Uh, it, I mean, that can take 16 months for some people. Now, Tom, I think dealt with that injury in like May or June. So he's going to be, um, in a pretty good place. I, you know, I don't have the, I don't have the timelines in front of me, so I don't want to comment on it specifically. Um, but the shoulder is generally what takes the longest in the body to recover. And especially for a guy that is going to be throwing down to second on multiple times, uh, multiple occasions during the game, they're going to want to make sure he's right. Well, I'm excited about Tom Murphy. I've always liked his game, especially from the offensive side. But to TJ's point, yeah, you just want to see him stay on the field because if he can do that, that's a pretty good tandem the Mariners have. But I am interested to hear about Cooper Hummel because you mentioned him here a couple minutes ago. And I'm kind of getting the sense that the Mariners, very sneaky, really like what he brings to the table between his versatility, his walk rate, his club control. Should we expect to see him on the roster on opening day? Oh, I definitely think so. Yeah, but I think he's going to be in a role. He's not Catcher is not going to be his title you know he's going to be a utility guy he's going to be playing the outfield just as much as he's going to play behind the plate Cooper Hummel can really move I think there's this misnomer about catchers that they're statues back there and they're you know Louis you watch Luis Torrens move around he looked good at second and third base but imagining that in the outfield I mean that's not confidence inducing Hummel is different than that he's a plus runner he doesn't have a great arm but he's got offensive tools he's got bat speed he's you know he, he can hit it gap to gap his exit velocities in the minor leagues last year were actually pretty inspiring. So he's he's probably the biggest question mark and unknown that I'm excited to see what comes of it in 2023, especially with this team's track record. You know, they put guys in positions to succeed. You look at what they've been able to squeeze out of Sam Haggerty. It's it's really pretty amazing considering, you know, where his career has taken us to this point. Dylan Moore was a minor league free agent that they pulled in, you know, uh, several years ago, he wasn't even offered a 40 man spot and they've turned him into something on the fringes of a big league regular. So if they can find that same sort of success with Cooper Hummel, as they found with some of these other super utility types, I think they're going to have a pretty, pretty exciting player and a pretty valuable player that can uh, take on a number of hats over the course of an entire season. Should we expect to also see Brian O'Keefe at some time for the on this Mariners roster throughout the season? Is he probably the number one backup in the minor leagues? I would think so. I, I mean, at one, you got to look at it this way: catchers are, are probably the guys that get beat up more than anyone. And if Cal Raleigh or Tom Murphy get hurt for any extended amount of time, Cooper Hummel isn't the type of player right now that I think you would trust putting behind the plate for several days a week behind the plate. So I would think that Brian O'Keefe would probably be the first call and he would probably play once a week just to get those guys off of the off of the diamond. And then who's behind O'Keefe at this point, looking a little bit further down into the minor leagues? Well, I think the number one guy you got to look at, listen, there are other guys that are making their way through the system that are fringier guys that I don't think the organization would be in a huge rush to put on the major league roster. I, I think there are trade options out there that make a lot more sense than some of the double A's and the backups at triple A, but you got to look at Harry Ford, right? So Harry Ford was a menace last season, especially the second half, second two thirds of the season. He's going to probably start the season in Everett. And if he tears the cover off the ball, 
like he did for the last three or four months of the season, there is a better than not chance that Harry Ford, as long as he can handle a pitching staff, sees Arkansas and double A in August, you know, for the last month of the season. And once you get to double A, it's all bets are off, right? So if Seattle needs uh, someone late in the season, I would be stunned. I put it a 5% chance that we see Harry Ford this year, but 2024 comes around and Harry Ford is definitely going to be in the blueprint of this team. Maybe not on opening day, but summer of 2024, especially with Tom Murphy potentially on the way out in the next year or two, Harry Ford's got to be in their plans. Yeah, I guess that was my real question just to wrap this up is I figured there's a next to none chance that Ford's in the big leagues this year. So just kind of going down that depth a little bit if for some reason there was a bunch of injuries if you need O'Keefe and then somebody else whether it be Jacob Nottingham or somebody further down in the system it sounds like you feel like if they got to that point it would probably just come via the trade right yeah I mean like there are guys like Tatum Levins is a guy that I think is is you know he could move fairly quickly he was a 23 year old draft pick out of Pittsburgh hits the ball really hard but pretty fringy behind the plate you know I don't even know if Jake Anchia is still with the organization, but he's been a defensive or an offensive liability, but he does have power. Jake Anchia could potentially be an option. Um, So yeah, like, and Jacob Nottingham is, you know, Jacob Nottingham with all due respect has a decent little hit tool, but he doesn't offer much else in terms of the rest of his profile. So uh, I think at that point, you know, once you're calling up guys like Jacob Nottingham, once you're calling up guys like Jake Anchia, you're probably looking at the at the trade market if you are going to be a contender in 2023 and uh, giving teams a call about uh, a Jacob Stallings or a you know uh, McCann with I don't even remember where he just went got went and got traded to from the Mets but guys on a one year deal that can just be a stopgap to get you to October. Well, that's great, Joe. Really appreciate all the information you've been able to shed on us uh, for this interview today. Congratulations. You're the first guest we've had on uh, in this iteration of the podcast. You can find all of Joe's work at prospectslive.com, the director of the MLB draft, uh, plenty of information about the Mariners, prospects, uh, and everything else you need to know about the lower levels uh, of baseball. Joe, thanks so much. We really appreciate it. Absolutely, guys. It was fun. Well, thanks so much to Joe Doyle for hopping on with us. I thought that was a great interview, TJ. I don't know about you, but there was a lot I learned. I was pretty interested to hear what he had to say about Cal Raleigh's swing, especially from the right side, that he's really impressed with it. Yeah, it makes a lot more sense when you think about it. And even if you just watch it, I mean, you can can kind of pinpoint it. But, you know, when you're just sitting back, you have a beer in hand, and you're watching the baseball game, that's not really something you think about. But the numbers really reflect that with Cal Raleigh. And it was also good to learn a lot about the uh, his thoughts on the international signings and Celestin again a guy who's who's 16 17 years old signing um for the Mariners 4.7 million of a 6.3 million uh pool of international money that people are going to be excited about but again he's not even going to play stateside ball for over a year over a year so we can watch his Dominican Summer League numbers and and bemoan over how good that he looks but you know it's going to be a process. I mean, he's, you know, minimum four years away from the minors, but it's good to see that there's some more excitement around a prospect like this uh, on the international signing that I don't think we've seen since Julio tore up the Dominican summer league and then makes his way stateside and then tears the cover off the ball. Well, you mean four years from the majors, right? I think he will be in the minors in 24. Yeah. From, from the majors. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. You said four years from the minors. I was like, well, I hope it's not that long. That'd be bad. Yeah, no, that would be an issue. <laughs> yeah. 
But it'll be fun to see him in the DSL because there's been some Mariners prospects that have played in the Dominican Summer League over the years that people get really excited about between Julio, between Noel V. Marte. We saw it last year with Lazaro Montez. Celestin's probably the next guy. So it was pretty cool to hear Joe hop on and give us some real insight on that because really you're not going to find many people that have a better breakdown and have more knowledge on where Celestin's at in his development and how he fares as a prospect. Then Joe Doyle does, because he does a ton of work on this stuff, and he does a great job. So we thank him so much for coming on with us. Now, let's get to our MLB wraparound. Well, TJ, news is getting lighter and lighter as the weeks are going on, but there was still a signing this week. Trey Mancini, he signs with the Cubs, two-year deal, opt-out after one year, but the Cubs get another good, productive bat in the lineup. And Cubs first baseman, Lyle, last year had a OPS of about 600, uh, 626, uh, the worst mark on their entire team. So <laughs> it's pretty obvious. Yeah, we need a bat at first base. And I think at his point of uh, this point of Trey's career, he'll be 31 when next season goes along. That's the kind of guy they need. Traded from the Orioles to the Astros this past year at the trade deadline. Didn't do a whole lot with Houston. I thought that was a really good fit for him. But he'll have a chance to get two years of security. That's nice to see for him uh, after being, you know, really a fan favorite with Baltimore. He's never been an elite player. He's always been a good player. 2019 was probably his best year. Nearly a four-war, 134 OPS+. plus. Even in 2021, he put up nearly a two-win season. So he's a guy for the Cubs that, really had issues at first base last year, he should be able to fill the void. I still can't believe the Orioles traded him, though. I don't know, like, he was their cleanup hitter. He He's that veteran guy amongst all the youngsters there. I Seems like an excuse to not spend any money. <laughs> you think they should have given him some type of extension? I don't think it would be anything crazy, but... Maybe you're thinking an extension of something along the lines of four to five years for 12 to $14 million a year. Four to five. How about two? Like what he got? Cause that's honestly probably where his value is at right now. Mm-hmm. So even two guaranteed years, I think Trey would be totally okay with that. I'm sure the Cubs like his versatility too, just because he can play first base. He can play the outfield. He can DH if they need him to. I do have one gripe with what the Cubs are doing at first base because Trey Mancini is going to play a decent amount of the time and he'll be in the lineup most days. I mean, why is Eric Hosmer there? Like, why why is he going to get reps <laughs> for the Chicago Cubs? Seriously. He's still under contract, isn't he? With that the deal that Padres signed him to, right? He is. And here's my biggest gripe. Not just the fact that Eric Hosmer has negative value to any team that he plays on at this point considering he objectively is putting up negative wars these days have you been paying attention to what Matt Mervis has done for the Cubs in the minor leagues I mean that's a guy that you and I both saw in the Cape League and he was good back then you look at him now Matt Mervis crushed it across three levels of the minors last year he put up a 984 OPS WRC plus above 150 he's not young I mean, he's going into his age 25 season, so it's not like they feel like he needs that much more development. I mean, it feels like they're probably just going to bring him up in May and kind of manipulate his service time. 
probably stick him at DH, I would guess, or stick Trey at DH and stick him at first base. So that'll be interesting. I'm still trying to figure out if the Cubs are in win-now mode. They're they're thinking they're going to win now, even though the roster is not good enough to win now. So you look at a couple of free agent signings like, hmm, well, do we have the prospect capital to be good? Do we have the players on our major league roster to be good? I'm not sure. The only thing that I thought of when you mentioned Eric Hosmer, do you think our show would get banned for all streaming platforms if we had our friend Chase on to talk about Eric? Oh, our buddy is a perfect embodiment for all Padres fans because he's really kind of shined the light on how people in San Diego feel about Eric Hosmer. I'm not going to quite say it's Joey Gallo levels in New York, but man, people in San Diego wanted nothing to do with Eric Hosmer, especially those last couple of years. I don't think there was any more. There wasn't a funnier moment across the whole last season of baseball than when Eric Hosmer was holding up the Juan Soto tray. <laughs> oh my goodness. That that was, I, I could not stop laughing while that was going down. And ju- just seeing Chase, like really, I mean, he, he was pissed (laughs) thankfully they figured it out but man oh man yeah he's he's had a tough sports calendar this year just between what happened with the chargers this past weekend eric hosmer nearly blocking them from acquiring juan soto yeah it's wild i i will say though if mervis does not come up until may wouldn't exactly be the first time that the cubs have manipulated a player's service time considering they did it with chris bryant back when he was a rookie so the Cubs certainly have a bit of a track record for doing it, but I don't know how you look at that roster and say you'd rather have Hosmer playing. But Mancini should help. Yeah, and it, it's just it's interesting with the Cubs' perspective in terms of manipulating prospects. I know like the rules have changed to to even it out a little bit, and if guys finish top three in the Rookie of the Year or win the Rookie of the Year, they they get a year knocked off. So I don't know. It, just the way the Cubs operate, it. it uh, they they operate more like a like a a mid to lower market team, even though they're in the third largest city in America. Like they didn't extend Bryant. Probably, oh, looking how Bryant looks now, probably for the best. Probably could have signed Rizzo. Uh, you know, Javi they didn't offer. They you know gave him to the Mets. Um, Contreras, yeah, yeah, Contreras. I mean, I don't. I honestly don't know why they didn't do that deal with Contreras. Like you don't find hitters like that behind the plate. And and no. the Cubs like just they operate like underneath their the, where we expect them. Cuz if you look at all the other the the other four big massive market teams, Mets, Yankees, Dodgers, Angels, are any of those four teams necessarily cheap? No. And did you throw the Mets in there too? No. Them too. Which, sorry, you cut out there for a second. I said, did you throw the Mets into that equation too? I did, yeah. Mets used to be cheap, but not with Steve Cohen. Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah, I don't get it either with the Cubs, but they did sign Dansby Swanson, to be fair, so they made one big signing. And again, Mancini's a fine player. Like, that's a good B move for a team that's looking to compete this offseason, or in this season for that matter. I don't think they're in rebuild mode anymore. The moves they've made suggest that they're going to try and win, but I wouldn't stack them up as being one of the top two to three teams in the National League or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. So we'll just have to see. Speaking of teams being cheap, whether this is actually cheap or just maybe a disagreement of skill and talents, 
Well, I'll mention it. There's not too much news. So what news we uh, what other news we can spread here on this MLB wraparound? Uh, we've each picked out a couple of arbitration cases that kind of raised the eyebrow a little bit and could maybe forecast the future of where these players are going to go. I'll start off with mine. Um, the first one I wrote down, as we're looking at some arbitration cases, the deadline was uh, earlier this week in terms of teams and players meeting their arbitration um, cutoff. Max Freed and the Braves did not agree on arbitration. They will go to arbitration again. They did it last year, uh, and they're going to do it again this year. But this year, uh, last year was over, I think, $600,000. This year, it's over a million and a half. The Braves filed at $13.5 million to pay Freed this year. Uh, Freed wants $15 million. This is a guy coming off their second Cy Young in 2022. And sometimes with these cases, you worry about the trust between the team and the player deteriorating. And a guy like Max Freed, as we've seen with a couple of free agents like Freddie Freeman uh, and Dansby Swanson, if they're not will- willing to take a club-friendly extension, the Braves seem more than happy to let those guys walk. It seems like that may be the crash course we're on with Max Freed, just because the Braves have been phenomenal about extending so many of their homegrown players. doesn't feel like it's trending that way with Freed, especially now that there's been multiple cases in arbitration with him and the club. That usually doesn't sit well with the player when you have to see the club say, we don't think you're worth what you believe that you are. And I feel like, again, I just feel like that's where this is heading. I mean, They locked up Spencer Strider. They have a really good rotation, but it just feels like Freed is going to be one of these guys, like you said, like Freddie, like Dansby, that's probably going to demand more money in free agency than the Braves might be willing to pay. We've we've highlighted this, but every Braves extension they've done is significantly under market. And a guy who's like, I want to be paid my market value, they're probably not staying. I mean, it's not a hot take. No, he just finished as the runner-up for the Cy Young this year. I would say he deserves $15 million. That's what I'm saying. And, you know, in his – sorry, before you go loud, for his extension, I mean, the Braves would probably offer him maybe, what, $20 million a year, and he's going to be like, "Hmm, I want 35. No. I mean, that's where I'd envision that going. And he'll have a case for it if he puts up another good year or two here because – I mean, you finished that high in Cy Young voting and put up as many good seasons as Freed has. He's going to warrant top-end starting pitcher money on the market, so we may see him get it. There was some Mariners news this week in arbitration, and it involves Teoscar Hernandez and the team. They're a couple million dollars apart on what they each filed for. I will give the Mariners credit for this. They are usually pretty good about working this stuff out. I know some people like to give this team a hard time about payroll, about signing free agents, about certain club extensions. When it comes to arbitration, you don't usually see the club have too many issues with their players. I think this is going to get resolved with Teoscar and the club. I don't really think it's that big of a deal. And if you want to look glass half full, this does give them a little more time to potentially work out an extension if that's a route the Mariners are interested in going with him. The only thing I think about is, do the Mariners want to extend him? I'm not sure if they know that yet. They have an idea of who he is and uh, and what kind of player he is when they traded for him. However, maybe they just want to see a, a year's worth of production or even half a season's worth of production at T-Mobile Park 
to see how he'll adjust to the climate, to see how he'll adjust to the clubhouse, and just see how he hits in a more spacious, pitcher-friendly park. And, you know, maybe with they want to get a better idea of how his bat will age, especially because he strikes out a little bit, doesn't walk as much. That's not necessarily the approach that ages as well. So that's something they might want to feel out a little bit as the season goes on. It obviously was a problem with Jesse Winker last year, so maybe they're a little bit cautious for that reason, although Teoscar is a different player than Jesse Winker is, for sure. Yeah, it'll be interesting. The only thing I think about with the Mariners is if they, well, first off, if their idea is to try and extend Teoscar halfway through the season and he's playing well, he may say no at that point, just because he feels, him and his agent feel like they might get more money on the actual free agent market. The other other part of this is, if the Mariners don't extend him before the season, they're going to be right back at the drawing board again next winter with their outfield. Because, look, we hope Jared Kelnick pans out. You know I'm as big a believer as, in him as anybody. But even if he pans out this year, they are still going to have one at most, maybe two gaping holes in the outfield next year. They're going to be right back at the drawing board because Teoscar and Pollock are both on one-year deals. But this is what they kind of asked for, to be honest. Mm-hmm. They came out probably in the middle of the offseason said, yeah, we're looking for one-year deals. It's like, okay, so it's you're essentially just patching over the problem uh, until yeah. you find your long-term solution there. I don't know what the answer is next year, to be honest. I mean, I, I kind of I question the one-year approach unless it is to land one Shohei Otani, in which case you're like, well, we'll work it out, in which case I'm like, okay, you guys go right ahead. But if they don't land him, and they're like, okay, well, we're we're setting up a bunch of one-year deals for a chance at him, and now we're kind of left with our hands open for a kind of thin hitter free agent market next year. It's like, hmm, we're going to have to trade more of our prospects to get guys when we could just sign them in free agency for a perhaps three-year deal. I don't know. Already a thing we've talked about a ton this offseason, and it'll be something we'll keep track of as we go along. Last guy for me, Lyle. A difference here between the Blue Jays and Bo Bichette, their shortstop, is just entering his first arbitration year. He filed at $7.5 million, the Jays at $5 million. Uh, I don't see the problem with paying Bo Bichette $7.5 million for the amount of value he produces. Uh, a little bit erratic at shortstop, um, but a very good hitter. High contact rate, uh, doesn't strike out a whole lot, ton, and, hit, and hits the ball pretty hard as well. Finished top 12 in MVP voting this past year, too. Yeah, there's not going to be many times in arbitration where I am personally going to side against the player because usually the player is worth what they're asking for. Again, if you just go by war, Bo Bichette putting up just under four wins this past year was worth nearly 32 million bucks. I think he's I think he has warranted what he's asking for. A hundred percent. And yeah, I don't know. The Blue Jays are going to have to start paying some guys here eventually. Someone is going to get extended. You know, Bo Bichette, uh, they've already signed George Springer to a big contract. I know that's why they sort of traded Teoscar away because they're like, well, maybe someone's going to have to go. And they chose Teoscar to let go of. They're going to have to eventually sign Vladdy to an extension. If they really like Varsho, they're going to have to sign him. They've already signed guys like you know, Kevin Gosman to a big contract. Maybe they want to extend Alec Manoa as well. There's a whole bunch of options there for the Blue Jays, and it's something that's on their mind as the years go along. Before we get to my last guy, just on a little personal note, 
anytime I hear Bo Bichette, I never get over the fact that, that when we were at school, when we were at Arizona State, there was a potential once upon a time in our freshman year to see a team that consisted of Gavin Lux and Bo Bichette and Spencer Torkelson and Hunter Bishop. Like, that's wild. I know Lux has been just okay so far in the majors, although he was a top five prospect. Hunter Bishop's had his struggles in the minors, but obviously was phenomenal in college. I mean, I don't know how that team offensively would not have averaged about eight runs a game. I mean, Bo Bichette would have hit about 400 in the Pac-12. I mean, <laughs> to put it lightly, you might have hit higher. Yeah, he might. He might have. I'm just. I, I was just kind of envisioning that, and I'm and I'm going to make the joke loud. They still would have won maybe 34 games and lost in a regional. <laughs> <laughs> they might have, man. Yeah, be, probably uh, because good team, they but man, they were they were challenged on the mound. <laughs> yeah, they would have lost about 15 to 12 or something like that with that team. Uh, well, last guy here on my much. arbitration list that I wanted to talk about. Corbin Burns, he files at $10.75 million. The Brewers file at, check this out, $10.01 million. First off, what? Like, just file at $10 million. Why $10.01 million? But to keep going along with this, Corbin Burns is one of the 10 best pitchers on the planet. He's asking for just under $11 bucks. Come on. Like, give the guy what he's asking for. The Brewers are going to trade either Brandon Woodruff or Corbin Burns. Like that is that is that is certain. They're not going to pay both those. They are not in a market where they 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 say at least they can't afford to pay those players. So one of them's going to get traded. And you know, Corbin Burns, if they keep you know lowballing him, it might be like, hey, I go to a big market, they'll pay me my worth. I'll get thirty million dollars a year on my next contract. I know the Brewers aren't going to give. $30 million on, on that contract, especially because the last long-term contract the Brewers gave out has aged horribly, horribly. Christian Yelich has not been very good since he signed that extension. Literally from the date he signed that extension, he has not been good. It's true. I mean, he had those couple of elite MVP level seasons. He won an MVP back in the late the late 2010s, we should say. But yeah, you're right. Since he got that big extension, because you remember how awful the first extension he was on was when he signed that contract with the Marlins. But since he got what he at the time was worth from the Brewers, yeah, it's gone downhill. I don't think that's an excuse for the Brewers to not pay Corbin Burns. You need elite starting pitching to be competitive in baseball, but that doesn't mean they'll do it either. No, but if they don't do it, someone else will. It's true. Uh all right, let's. Oh, you got one? Any? Got some else? No, that's just about it. I was going to say one of these days, these owners will finally, all these owners will finally wake up and realize you have to spend money to make money. But today's not that day. Will they? Well, probably not. Will they, though? Probably not. <laughs> I don't think. I think now they would because they're making more money than they ever have. And, well, the A's still exist. Yeah. Let's close up the show now with Speak Your Mind. Speak Your Mind, Spock. That would be unwise. What is necessary is never unwise. All right, Lyle, what's up first for you on Speak Your Mind? I've just got one for this week, and I got to tell you, I'm sick of this new interface on Twitter. I hate it so much. 
why I don't know why in the world I have two separate tabs with one tab that says for you that's almost all of the exact same tweets that's on your second tab, which is the following page, aka the people you actually follow. I don't know if this has been happening for you, but my two feeds look almost identical. And I'm getting sick and tired of having to swipe back and forth between for you and following to use Twitter. Like, can't everything just be on one feed, please? Like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It was so perfect the way it was for all those years. Yeah, it, I mean, this option was always available. You could, like, go up into the settings tab and change your feed to, it was either, uh, I think it's mo- it was, like, most popular and, <clears throat> excuse me, or most relevant and then most recent. Which I liked, but it wasn't like it wasn't forced at the top of your screen where you had to worry about two separate feeds. It was off in the corner where you could go change it if you wanted to. But now it's like, uh, okay, I mean, I kind of like the for you option. I like see, I mean, the way I see more funny tweets is when seeing things everyone else likes. So I don't really, yeah, I I prefer the sort of hidden option. It just kind of makes it more clunky. Yeah. And my whole thing is, I feel like I would see a lot of tweets anyway because. For a while on the main feed, or really the only feed, if people were liking tweets, likes were showing up, so sometimes you'd see more tweets, where now you see all that stuff on both tabs, and it just gets so confusing. Like, sometimes I think I'm scrolling on the following tab, I'm actually scrolling on the For You tab, I don't know, it's just, it's just all in my head, and I think it's too confusing, and yeah, you know what, people, people are simple-minded like me, I'd like everything to be on one feed. Do you actually use the following one? I don't. Well, that's what I mainly use because that's what it was. I mean, that was the go-to like generic interface before the For You tab was added, wasn't it? It was just who you were following. Like That's what I prefer to use. Yeah, I mean, I liked the format the way For You is. Again, to see funny tweets and popular ones that I, for people I might be following. There's also things, you know, I don't like that I see on there. So it'll be interesting, but it, it's a bit more, um, you know, gives a little bit more options and guys I could follow. So that'll be interesting. Fair enough. Right, you are going to love my speak your mind today. Okay. He popped up in the news again this morning. Um, I'm not going to say exactly what he did because I don't think it's really appropriate for this podcast bit. As soon as we think Antonio Brown has disappeared off the face of the planet and we don't know what he does, he comes back onto the internet and strikes again. If you want to see the situation I'm talking about, it shouldn't take that much of a Google search to find what he put out this morning. But my goodness, every time this man feels like he's going to be irrelevant, he it's like a calculated decision that'll hop back onto the internet and just post something that's just fucking stupid. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I'm going to be honest with this man. I'm going to be honest. I still don't know exactly what it is that he did. I mean, all I've seen today is he did something really stupid on his Snapchat story and, and that's it. Maybe that's all I need to know. <laughs> it's probably all you need to know, uh, man. I mean, what has there been any player in any sport that has fallen off his rocker more after he left his league? And Antonio Brown, again, by the way, voluntarily left his league, putting up a peace sign to the people at at the uh, uh, at MetLife Stadium. <laughs> I mean, you. Can... Anytime we talk about Antonio Brown, I re- I can't keep it together. I mean, because it just feels like 
it feels like it's some fiction movie, like some, it feels like some movie Adam Sandler would put together based on sports where like, you know, who, who in the world tells the general manager of a football team that you're going to punch him directly in the face like he did to Mike Bayock. <laughs> and, and like, now that we look back on it in his hard knocks phase where that happened when he was, I still can't believe he was a, he was a, <laughs> a Raider. <laughs> what a brief tenure. But that I feel like he, he remember he burnt his feet on cold on purpose. I think I'm pretty certain it was on purpose to get traded and it's like oh this dude is just reckless and stuff and then the video that comes out after he got released was like (laughs) (laughs) nobody else does that nobody else remember um remember when he was a bill you said remember when he was a raider oh i honestly forgot he was a bill (laughs) for like two days there was a trade in place to send him to Buffalo and then it fell through and he ended up going to Vegas or I guess Oakland at the time. Yeah. I mean the fact that he flew in on his hot air balloon and hard knocks. I mean, yeah, the the list just goes on for this dude. It never stops. Right. Oh my goodness. That's, that's a good one. They should have a camera following him around all every second of every day and put it on television. I beg television please just offer him some money and put it up so i could be entertained just have it be his own hbo show or something i would watch it (laughs) you probably wouldn't be alone yeah he's he finds his way into the news that's for sure but with that that just about wraps up this episode of the marine layer podcast as always if you want to continue to follow us you can follow us on apple spotify and YouTube, full podcasts are across all three of those platforms, along with Amazon and Google, if you use those platforms. If you want to follow us on social media, we're on YouTube Shorts, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. You can find us at Marine Layer Pod. Well, for TJ Matthewson, this has been Lyle Goldstein. We thank you, as always, for tuning in. We'll talk to you guys next week.